Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Needs, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you this evening? We are still being swept away by the smell of linden. Oh, lovely. Linden, linden, hear my heart. You can bring me 
a brand new start. Well, after waiting and watching the linden, because you know that linden overhangs our deck where we eat every night, right? So we yes. see the green samaras come out. And that's like weeks before there's flowers. And you wait patiently, and then you see the stalk from which the flowers are going to depend come down. And then you see the flower buds, and you watch the flower buds. And they get, are they getting bigger? It's hard to tell. I think, well, they must be getting bigger because, look, oh, and finally, finally, it's almost the day when they open. And traditionally around here, that is indeed the 4th of July weekend when the linden at my place opens and it rained all day Friday. And it rained all day Saturday. And it rained all day Sunday. But yesterday, yesterday, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it had been 24 hours without rain. And I said, Lyndon, we're going after it. Because, well, it already rained again today. So I knew we had that one window of opportunity. And, of course, Last week, someone had asked a question about harvesting linden. And I found myself unhappy with my answer and, in a general way, unhappy with that kind of question. I know when the ideal time to pick my linden flowers was, it was Friday, but it was pouring rain. And it's not ideal to pick them in the rain. Saturday would have been good. Sunday would have been good. By Monday, by yesterday, when we were picking them, they were already too old. But that's not what the bees thought. We stood there in the linden, smelling the incredible fragrance of the linden. And bees burned. Birds are tweet, and linden blossoms sure smell sweet. If the bees are buzzing, the birds are tweeting, and the linden smells sweet, I'm going to harvest it. There were actually some flowers still in bud. There were actually some flowers just opening and just perfect. There were some flowers which were yesterday's flowers. Most of the flowers, yeah, they were Friday's flowers for sure. And some of them even but especially on the east side of the tree, where the morning light came, had even started to become green seeds. And so what I did when I got to that part of the tree, where it wasn't just a seed or two here or there forming up, but a lot of them, I turned around and I walked to the other side of the tree, to the west side of the tree, and sure enough, there were a lot more fresh flowers over there on the west side of the tree. So my dissatisfaction, my unhappiness with my answer was that my answer did not encompass all the variables that come into play when we're harvesting a plant. We might have a rule book of when the very best time to harvest linden is, but that doesn't mean the weather's going to cooperate. So then we have to say, am I going to let somebody else linden? Am I just going to let all of this linden go by? Or am I going to, because I'm in relationship with it, find out by observing and sensing and being present whether or not this linden was still harvestable? 
because really, I, I believe that's that's what that question was last week was, when does the linden stop being harvestable? Has it is it too old? When is it too old to harvest it? And it, as I said, it it's really a good question, but the the question itself was more on the order of trying to get the rule for it. And there aren't those rules. There are generalities. We can talk about what's best. We can talk about what's ideal. We can talk about what we like. But we're all beholding to the weather when we're working with plants. Justine, there's so much hypericum. The hypericum started blooming on Friday too, right? And it rained all day. Blooming on Saturday and it rained all day. Not blooming so much on Sunday and it rained all day. It was like, ooh, but it's pointless. We know that it is pointless to go out there and harvest it when it's raining. Mm-hmm. So you do what given what you're given, and this is part of the reason that my teachers, and we've talked about this before, always said. Harvest for two years. You don't know what's going to happen next year. You're a little cooler than I am. Has your linden started to bloom yet? It is not not ideally. It's just about there. I'm only the couple that I have seen. There's not, believe it or not, a whole lot of linden trees Back in the hills where we are, um, not a lot of parks and things. And I just haven't put my eyes on too many of them. So I can't speak for a large group, but um, I think the ideal harvestable would still be here. Um, But it has been really hot. We've been nearing 90. Mm. so yeah, I wasn't out today, so I can't I can't say. It could have been today. I know last year I waited and waited and waited for it to open and finally it opened and it was July fourth weekend here last year. So Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. I actually had harvested a week ago. I was across the Hudson River on the other side. And I had taken a walk there last month, and I saw the samaras of a linden tree. And I don't know if it's a weeping linden or what kind of cultivar it is, but you could, I picked three huge baskets worth of linden with my feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. I was my head in the branches of the trees and just picking, 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 and they were even a little further gone, but I knew that I was there right then. I knew where the linden tree was. I knew it would be easy to harvest. Then I knew thunderstorms were on the way and rain was on the way. So I said, I'm going to take this hour that I have right now, and I'm going to go harvest this linden that's a little bit too old. So it's all of it's all of those things that go into that decision as to whether or not you're going to be harvesting that plant at that time, given whatever the rule book says. Mm-hmm. And of course, what it does, and you said, I always t- 
teach when I'm teaching teaching is just give them the rule. Don't tell them the exceptions. So if you know that perennial roots are dug as late in the fall as you can get into the ground or as early in the spring as you can get into the ground, then it does not come as too much of a shock to you to learn the chicory root is harvested in the middle of the summer when it's blooming because they want it to have the least medicinal compounds and to taste the sweetest. Because mm. it's a coffee substitute, right? Right, right. So this is actually the time of the year when the chicory root is harvested and roasted to make that coffee substitute. Oh, wow. And that that's pretty easy for you to remember because you already know the rule. But if when I was talking about when we harvest perennial roots, if I started introducing this kind of odd thing that goes on with chicory, it gets confusing. It addles your brain. It makes it hard to remember. Yeah. We went from the linden tree, which we had to get very much off the ground. I was up on a ladder. Mickey and uh, Michelle, the apprentice, were up on the roof, which is the usual for linden. Linden holds its flowers high up there. And we went from there to the Monarda Didyma patch. Mm. Harvested Monarda Didyma. And um, I usually cut the flowering top with four to six leaves. And I use that flowering top with the leaves, one of those per ounce of comfrey when I make the infusion. It's not Monarda fistulosa. It's not the Monardas that you grow, all of which have a lot of oregano oil in them. It does not taste good as tea. It makes your comfrey taste like pizza. But the Monarda Didyma, the Oswego tea, is the true tea bee balm, and it does not have any of that oregano taste to it at all. And it just brings this delightful, mmm, spiciness to the comfrey. Mm. You've had the comfrey infusion we make with the, with the Monarda Didyma. Oh, yes. It is very tasty. Very tasty. And a very easy plant to grow. So many people are growing plants, and that's why I go into detail about the fact that you go out to a garden supply store and you ask for bee balm, they're going to say you a cultivar that smells and tastes like oregano. You really mm. have to get Mona Didyma, the D-I-D-Y-M-A, the Didyma, is the only one that's really nice for tea, and just a tiny bit of it, just that one stalk per ounce of comfrey. And we were saying, let's see, now how many of these would we need for a whole year? Right, so an individual person will consume five pounds of comfrey a year. Five pounds of nettle, five pounds of oat straw, five pounds of red clover, two and a half to three pounds of linden. So five and there's 16 ounces. That means I need 90 Monarda Didyma tops to have one wow. for each ounce 
I'm free. Mm. That I will use in a year. Wow. Fortunately, the Green Witches holiday is going up to Gretchen Goulds. I was just talking to Gretchen last night, and uh, we were talking about the plants up there. And she says, oh, you know, there's not so much hypericum, the rain, that it I said, yeah. I said, but there's plants up there. She said, oh, there's not so many plants. I said, well, first of all, most of the women have never seen a tansy, tansy plot like yours. She says, I have a tansy forest. And she's right. The tansy there gets like six mm-hmm. to eight feet tall. And if you go into the tansy, you could be the lost girl, let me tell you. You could never come out of the tansy. And of course, there's that strong smell. She says, but what's really taken over this year is the Monarda. She said, the two Monarda patches are so big, and I'm going, hey, 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 yeah. I'm going to get lots of Monarda. We're up there this this Saturday. It's such a privilege mm. to be with Gretchen Gould, to, to have the privilege to be with a an elder herbalist who, uh, you know, officially, I always say that once you get to 85, you kick back and let the apprentices do it. So she's really right there at that point where she could just say, ah, I'm kicking back now, but she's still coming out and meeting us and showing us all of the beautiful plants on her land. And I reminded her that her land is covered in wild thyme. And, yeah, okay, you have to crawl on your belly with your scissors to cut the wild thyme. It's true, but it's so wonderful to uh, be in that meadow, right, crawling around with your nose down there was all of the plants, and, and there's so much yarrow there. Now, why is there less hypericum there? Well, it's very easy. Hypericum doesn't like to fight for its space. Have you ever noticed that? It's not going to grow in a place where it has to shoulder other plants away. Like the teasel will grow, you know, pushing other plants. Eh, 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 give me room. I'm the teasel. Uh, uh. Right? The burdock. Get out of my way. Uh, uh. <laughs> but the hypericum does not want to tussle. So it likes to grow in places that are cropped by animals or mown by people irregularly. The hay field that wasn't cut last year the back of the horse pasture, the roadside, places that get cut so there's no competition, right? Mm. And when she bought the land, it was a a hayfield. So it had been cut. But as it was changing hands... It wasn't being used so much for hay because that county had fewer and fewer cows, so there's less and less demand for hay. So it didn't get cut. And then she bought another property that had been being cut for hay. But again, she hasn't cut either of them for hay. So the more pushy plants have moved in. So they dug huh? Well, yeah. Right, so Medago and wild oregano and asters, right, tough perennials that push and shove. Wow. Even the yarrow, right, stands there and doesn't let the others, the wild roses, 
and hypericums, and it's not going to do that. It's not going to tussle. Hmm. So if you have a, and it's it's also not a long-lived perennial. It's not like, oh, you found your Hypericum patch and it will be there forever. It won't. You might get another year out of it, or maybe you found it on its last year. So it has to move around as well. You have to let enough of it set seed that it can easily move around for you. Wow, I hope we have a patch come up as our pasture transforms. That will be lovely. Yeah, I bet you will. Mm. We'll be on the lookout for sure. We've been finding more and more trees, so babies yeah. are native to their place, so we've been finding them. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Our guest tonight at 9 o'clock here on the East Coast is Joanne Calabresi. I believe that Joanne was supposed to be our guest the night that Blog Talk suddenly decided we only needed to talk for 15 minutes and cut us off prematurely. So here she is. We've managed to reschedule her, and she is a skilled wellness, mindfulness, and recovery educator, a lifelong organic gardener, and herbalist who does meditation ritual work, Qigong, Tai Chi, and she's written a book called Growing Mindful, Explorations in the Garden to Deepen Your Awareness. Stay with us until 9 o'clock or come back and you'll get to hear what Joanne Calabrese has to say tonight. Do we have any people with questions tonight? We do. We have five callers that have already pressed one to say that they have a question for you. And I'll remind everyone else listening, if you have a question, please do press one so that we know that you'd like to speak with Susan. And our first caller is calling from the two. 09 area code from the 209. You're live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hello. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hello. I'm well, and you? I'm well. Thank you. I'm calling about an ear problem I've had. Tell me. It's been going on since, yes. It's been going on since uh, January, and I've seen five doctors. now they've one of the doctors uh decided it was a fungus problem and uh gave me fluconazole and that seemed to help um but hasn't cleared it up and subsequently I've developed a a, a lymph node a swollen lymph node um, so they've requested that I had a, a chest x-ray um uh and a uh a scanned um ultrasound and then a CT scan now he wants me to have that he's he, I just saw another doctor today so he's he's really really pushing that so uh um just well, interested I, in you your prob- you probably input. know you probably know that what I say about tests is what you need to ask your doctor and yourself is what is the purpose of this test? And not the purpose of this test is to look at your ear, but the purpose of this test is I don't know what else to do, so we're just going to do this. A CT scan has a lot of radiation. Okay. 
So is this a scan that is really going to give you a different diagnosis and a different approach and a different way of dealing with your problem? Or is this just the next biggest gun to fire at it? Yeah. The other thing to ask is, is this test going to improve my health? Okay. Well, that's almost a scary question, isn't it? Because you think, oh, whoa, wait, wait, most tests don't improve, don't improve my health. That means most tests are injurious to my health? Yes. Would you be willing to reel back a couple of steps and tell me what the actual problem is? You don't have to give me well, Tell me what you're yeah, experiencing. I think what they're doing. Yeah. No, I don't want to know what they're, they're doing. Trying I want to, to know what the camp, you are experiencing, camp. if you'd be willing to share that. Yeah. What I'm experiencing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Why did you seek um, out a doctor just, in the first place? Does it itch? Does it keep you up at night? Is there pus? Is your ear swollen? What's going on? Yeah, I have a swollen ear, and then it, it, it starts to throb and ring, and and, uh, and it's swollen, so it, it sticks out about an inch. Uh, so my wife insisted has, that I start to see a doctor. Has it been swollen like that for six months? No, it hasn't, no. Mm-hmm. So it comes and I goes. Think the yeast, yeah, it comes and goes. I think the yeast uh, treatment has probably helped it, and they may be onto something there. But I think now they're just trying to eliminate uh, the big problems, you know, cancer, make sure that we are covering ourselves with this with that's what scan. I'm they want yeah. you to do a test that's bad for your health to cover their butts. Yeah, do you really want to do that? that? Do not you really. really want to do that? Maybe you do. I'm not saying that it would be unthinkable. I'm just saying, is this really something that you need to do? I'll tell you what I believe is going on is that you've been bitten by a spider. I'm sorry? I believe that you have been bitten by a spider. Oh, okay. Because spider bites act like this. And I've seen other people who've had spider bites on their ears and the ear swells up and turns red and looks kind of puffy or soft. Okay. And that's, of course, the venom that the spider has injected, which it puts into a fly and turns the fly's innards to soup. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's like trying to turn your ear to soup. I see. And it hurts. And it hurts disproportionately to the way it looks sometimes. I see. Okay. Does that go along with what you're experiencing? Um, well, it, it, it swelled up and then it, it kind of went away and then it came back and then. Exactly. It cycles. That's why I'm saying spider bite because spider bites cycle oh, like that. Okay. Right? okay. So, you know, your body says, you know, no, that that's not happening. Stop doing that. But it's the venom is very long lasting. and It just keeps cycling and cycling. So anti-inflammatories like linden. A direct poultice of something like onion or plantain. Okay. 
um, really help break that inflammatory cycle that your body has gotten into in response to a spider bite. I see. Okay. The, okay. When you said the yeast treatment, was that something you took orally? Yeah. Yeah. General you know that in general fungicides taken orally are some of the most dangerous drugs to take. Oh, I did not I did not know that. And what I usually suggest to people is before you take any drug, ask the same questions we're asking about this. Do you know for sure that this drug is going to have an effect on this problem, or are we just guessing? And read the side effects. Read the package insert before you take any drug. Okay. Okay, you could, you could have lifelong damage to your liver from taking that drug. Yeah, okay, yeah. For, just for instance. So the fungicides are in a whole category by themselves. Um, in terms of all drugs are really harsh on the liver, but the fungicides especially are. Okay. So if it is a fungus, it's not a systemic fungus. So even if it were a fungus, I don't think that giving a fungicide orally is the way to go. I think if there's a fungus, that that fungus is usually surface, and that surface treatments are most effective for eliminating it. I see. Okay. Two herbs are known as pretty powerful fungicides. Horsetail, which was equisetum, and golden seal, hydrastis. Either one okay. can be made as tea and a cloth soaked in it and then applied to the ear. The golden seal will stain the cloth yellow, so use something that's kind of raggy that you don't mind staining if you're using golden seal. Oh, yeah, yeah. And short poultices um, done a few times a day um, are probably more effective than one poultice done for a long time. Although one sure. done for a long time is the easiest thing to do, isn't it? Too bad. It is, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's like grumble, grumble. So the... Other question that I have is to ask you about your diet. Just characterize your diet in general for me, if you can. Okay. Um, well, my wife cooks, you know, and she's a good mm-hmm. cook. Uh, we have a lot of okay. uh, leafy greens, a lot of bitter greens. When she cooks those leafy greens, how long does she cook them for? Um, it depends on which ones they are. Like the collard, she cooks for quite a while. And the others that Good. she doesn't cook too long, Glad to hear like that. the dandelion greens and the uh-huh. um, um, broccoli raw, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, In general, the longer a vegetable is cooked, the more nutritious it will be. Oh, good. Good to know. Yeah. As a matter of fact, several people just sent me the headline from the food section in the New York Times, which says, turns out long and slow is the way to go with cooking vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I saw that. My students, have known, my students have known this for over a quarter of a century. <laughs> We're all becoming enlightened, want, I guess. You want some nutrition from your vegetables. So what else does she cook besides vegetables? Uh, we have chicken. Uh, we had, you know, uh, Barbecue chicken, like that. Uh, gosh, what does she cook? Whole That's grain good. rice. 
Yeah. Grain. Um, rice. All right. Then I, I'm not worried. Do you currently drink nourishing herbal infusions? Um, yeah, they're in the house. I let her drink them more, but I, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. she makes them well, just about every day. You might want to the next time she makes linden. Linden's a wonderful anti-inflammatory. Okay. Right? Linden. And the next time she has comfrey. Comfrey's really one of the best healers for the kinds of kind of thing that's going on with your ear. Okay. All right. As but, you know, drink? don't drink any of the stinging metal because it might give you too much energy and you might, you know, feel too good. And be okay. sure to avoid the oat straw because it's just for sexual functioning and you're not interested in that. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> Believe me, every single one of them has something to offer you. But at least start with the linden and the comfrey, okay? Okay. All right. Astragalus? Astragalus is Thank okay, you. but it's not... I'm going to help your ear. Okay. I, I, I have five infusions that I rotate through. I use astragalus as needed, and I tend to cook with it rather than make it as an infusion. I see. Okay. Yeah. As a flavoring in food? It's not even a flavor. It's very bland. The infusions are nourishment. I want high protein, high minerals, and high vitamin content. I want antioxidants and anti-inflammatories in my nourishing herbal infusions. Astragalus is a wonderful herb, but it's not nourishing in the same way that nettle or oat straw or red clover or comfrey is. Got it. Great. Susan, thank you you for your wisdom. You're welcome. Dream blessings. Good night. Goodbye. All right, and we have five callers with their hands raised, and the next caller is calling from the 812 area code. From the 812, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. This is Arta. I'm going to ask you about about menstrual cramps. Okay. So in three of the past four cycles, I've had really bad, really painful menstrual cramps. But prior to that, for about five years, maybe when I first I first um, started using motherwort about five years, and working with motherwort, my cramps went away. And I really haven't struggled with cramps since then. So I, I, just forgot, I don't know what to think. I just recently been feeling pretty difficult being around my period, like out of nowhere, it seems. Let me see if I understood what you said because you're breaking up quite a bit. Um, You used to have menstrual cramps, and you started using motherwort, and the motherwort helped to pretty much eliminate the menstrual cramps. And for the past five years, you haven't had any menstrual cramps. And starting three cycles ago, you started having cramps, and they've been strong cramps. Yes. Have, Have you used motherwort? Yes, and when I get the cramp and take motherwort, it works great. Okay. So, I'm just... Go ahead. So, you're wondering if there's some problem that you're having cramps again. Yes. I I think I'm wondering if... Maybe I'm, I'm less worried that there's something 
wrong with me and just more, I, I just don't really know what to think about having been it, so much time go by without crayons and then to just start having them again. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. one way of saying that is I'm worried. But I, I don't have the sense that there's something um, like wrong going on. You don't have the sense that there's anything wrong going on. No. Has anything changed in your life in the past three months? Yes. Yes. So it's not just that you're having cramps. There's other changes in your life. Yes, I moved and I left my Ph.D. program. So some pretty big life changes. Pretty big. Yeah. And we are embodied beings. Okay. And what usually is our response to having menstrual cramps? Usually our response is hunker down, get in bed with a pad, get in a hot bathtub with a candle and a romance novel. Right? Eat some ice cream. So our response is usually to go inside and to take care of, even indulge ourselves, yes? Yes. When something is happening in my life that I'm a little bothered by or a lot bothered by, I ask myself if I could supply for myself what that is supplying without having that. Would you be willing to take that time to pamper yourself and indulge yourself the way you do when you have menstrual cramps if you don't have them? Oh, interesting. I want to say the answer to that question is yes, but I have a feeling it might be no. Then let us praise the menstrual cramps for giving you that permission. (laughs) Yes, I see what you mean. Okay. All right. And really do it up. Say, oh, wow, here they go. I'm having cramps. Okay, what is it going to be, you know, the heating pad or the hot bath or the, you know, really say, yeah, okay, this is my secret to stop my dentist today chortling said i've decided to go part-time she said last year she said you know a little over a year ago back you know back when everybody had life she said a little over a year ago i was asked to go and do this thing but it was a a 10-day adventure and i couldn't go because i couldn't close the office she said and then Two months later, the governor said, you must close your office. She said, and I realized I could close the office. (laughs) Right. Right? So we've all been bounced a little bit by this, right? Things that we put off and said, oh, no, no, I must be responsible. I must do this. Suddenly we couldn't. Right. And now we're like going back. Well, maybe we're not. Right. Yes. Maybe maybe we just enjoyed what was happening too much, and we want more time in the garden, and we're not going to go back full-time. Maybe, you know, things are changing. 
And it's, Dang. you know, way back, way back, Mark Black, Woodstock song maker says, you know, when you go back, you don't go back to where you've been. You go back to where you're going, too. <laughs> that's right. So you are, yeah, going, you right. are going to someplace mm-hmm. new. You have changed things. You're off on a new adventure. And Seriously. your body is saying, good, and take care of yourself. <laughs> right, okay. That really makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'm so glad that you've allied with Motherboard. I think that's an excellent choice. Me too. Me too. It's made all the difference in so many different moments in my life. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for that perspective. So um, my my partner is here, and he has a question for you as well. Sure. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Hello, Tina. It's, it's me again. <laughs> um, so, okay, my first question, so I've been eating a lot of kanji lately, and I really love it. And I was just curious about uh, what you have to say about uh, uh, right in a person's diet in general. I um, the first thing that comes to mind, though, like the reason I asked, I was looking at different kinds of recipes, and I noticed that some of them call for uh, washing the rice, like rinsing it until the water's clear. And I was uh, I wasn't sure. They don't really say why. I've done. I've read about um, about the reasons for doing that, but I just wanted to hear it from you. Um, you know, if you agree with that or, yeah, or how you feel about rice in general. Let's start here. Okay. Grains are the seeds of grasses. All mm. grass seeds are edible. In order to protect themselves, grass seeds include constituents which we call anti-nutritional constituents. There are things like phytates and lectins, which are found in all whole grains, which actually interfere with the body's ability to absorb and utilize certain nutrients. Mm -hmm. So a variety of ways worldwide have been created to free the grains from these anti-nutritional qualities. One way is to get rid of the outer hull of the wheat or the rice, turning it into a white carbohydrate. So instead of brown rice, Mm. it's white rice, right? Mm. Yes. So that gets rid of those anti-nutritional qualities. Unfortunately, it gets rid of about 100 other nutrients. Mm-hmm. So once we've freed the wheat or the rice from its germ and its bran, we have lost the fiber, we've lost the vitamin E, we've lost most of the minerals, and we're pretty much left with pure carbohydrate. Mm. Obviously, pure carbohydrate is food because 
much of the world subsists on it, yes? Yes. We tell the story of the apprentice who arrived from Singapore, and we had brown rice for her very first meal. She looked at the pot of brown rice, burst into tears, and said, Am I to be fed the food of animals while I am here? Wow. She was deeply offended to see brown rice on the table. Humans eat white rice. Mm-hmm. Sally Fallon talks about soaking the grains because when you soak the grains and throw away the water, you're throwing away the phytates and the lectins. Okay. So you don't really need to soak white rice because there aren't phytates and lectins and other anti-nutritional qualities in it. It's just carbohydrate. It's not a problem. Right. Right. But okay. if you have brown rice or whole grain wheat or any other grain, soaking it overnight and then throwing away the water is one way to clear those things. Another way to do it is to ferment it. This is one of the mm. ways we give anti-nutritional constituents in soybeans by turning it into miso and tamari. So sourdough bread ferments out the anti-nutritional compounds. Mm. When Sally Fallon came to the Wise Woman Center to teach, I knew that I was going to serve her rice and beans. And I was determined that I was not going to soak my rice because I don't soak my rice because the truth of the matter is I find soak rice is gooey and sticky and yucky. Mm. And I learned to eat rice during my macrobiotic days. When you measured two parts of water to one part of rice, you brought the water to a boil, you put the rice in, you let it come to a boil, you turned it down to a simmer, you put the lid on the pan, and you did not look at it or move the lid for 45 minutes. Right. And you had a beautiful, well-cooked, nice brown rice with every grain, individual, and a little bit of tooth to it. Not chewy, not sticky, not gummy. So I knew that I was going to serve her brown rice my way. And my way is also to cook my grains in W-H-E-Y. My way is to use whey. Because mm. I'm a cheesemaker. Dairy goods. <laughs> so I have gallons and gallons and gallons of whey. So I use it to cook my grains. And it came time oh. to eat. And I brought out my rice pot and I lifted the and I put wild seeds in. I have wild amaranth seeds and wild nettle seeds and wild plantain seeds, whatever wild seeds I have on hand. I toss some of those in. And so when you take the lid off the pot of rice, what you see are all these little black wild seeds kind of caught up in the little bit of cheese that floats to the top of the way and makes like a little kind of white, cheesy surface to the rice. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is the brown rice I'm serving you. I said, and I did not She said, what's that on the top? I said, oh, that's cheese from the whey. She said, this was cooked in whey? I said, yeah, this was cooked in whey. She said, that's far better than soaking it, she said. 
Mm. She says the way is acidic. It gets rid of those anti-nutritional qualities. So what do we have? You can get rid of the bran and the germ and anti-nutritional qualities and wind up with pure carbohydrate, and that's what lots of cultures do. Mm. Or you can soak your whole grain and throw away the water, getting rid of those anti-nutritional compounds. Or you can cook your grain, your rice, in whey. Or you can ferment it. Mm. Okay. I never heard of cooking rice in whey, but thank you for putting me on to that. I'm going to have to look up to try. Yeah. And if you're not making cheese... Um, mm-hmm. You can get a little whey from yogurt. If you buy a container of yogurt and let it sit in the refrigerator, it will weigh off, right? You'll get whey on the top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you can use that. Even a little bit of it in your rice will be useful. Um, you can also just buy some you know, good organic milk and let it sit in the refrigerator without sloshing it around for a couple of weeks until it turns into curds and whey, and then you'll have a fair amount of whey. Oh, okay. As well as a little bit of cheese. Okay. How long does it take, uh, generally? Well, I don't know how long it takes because I don't know how fresh the milk is or what temperature your refrigerator is. But (laughs) it's almost impossible to ruin milk. Milk doesn't spoil. It turns into cheese. Oh, okay. 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 It separates into curds which little Miss Muffet was eating. Okay. And so long as you're not bitten in the ear by the spider, all is well. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay, I have right. one more question. Okay. Dream blessings. There's a lot of people waiting with questions tonight. It's been a delight okay. talking to you. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Green blessings. Oh, All right, and we have five people that have pressed one to signal that they have a question. Our next caller is calling from the 870 area code. From the 870, you are live with Susan. Hello. Hello. Thank you for taking our calls this evening. I'm calling in regards to uh, my mother. She has had some issues with her shins, and I was wondering if you would be willing to talk to me about it a little bit. How old is your mom? Oh, I'm sorry. She was born in 66, so that would make her 53. Uh Uh-huh. And And why, why is she not talking to me? Well, we tried to, we tried to get a room together. And she had to go and get dinner and all that sorted. So she's actually on the calling list, but uh, it's not uh-huh. a great time for us this evening. We we give it a we gave it a best shot, but um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, it's, it's my rule not to do secondhand consultations. I understand that, and I you know break that rule for you know children who can't speak, for people who've had a stroke and can't be on the telephone. But your mom's of, you know, an age and a a physical ability that she could indeed speak to me. And so I 
very honestly hope that she will find a time when it works for her. Awesome. Well, I understand. Now, it's an hour and a half show, so if she wants to call a little bit later, um, I could urge her to do that. Or perhaps um, another week she could uh, make a dinner that goes in the oven that would be ready after she has talked to me because it's heating up in the oven. I'm sure that with a little imagination she can find a way to actually speak to me herself. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I'm looking forward to hearing your show this evening. Thank you. Green blessings. All right, and our next caller is also calling uh, from the 870 area code. From the 870, you are live with Susan. Hey. Hi. This is the lady that was for the other lady that just called. I'm her mother. Oh, how wonderful. I'm so glad you called. How easy. That was wonderful. <laughs> I was so thank you. I just something is going on with your legs? I have diabetes, and I have this thing, and it's called necro. Hang on. Let me look that word up because I really don't know how to say it. You have type 2 diabetes? I do. And it's N-E-C-R-O. And you've had it for how long? About 10 years. About 10 years. And during that 10 years, um, what kind of changes have you made to your diet or your life? Um, I was very good at eating things that I should be eating. And then I got married. And we went out to eat a lot, <laughs> and I think I just, I think that was a, a big problem for me. And now I'm working toward getting myself back on check. I am now insulin dependent. Right now, are you drinking nourishing herbal infusions? No, ma'am, I'm not. Okay. That is step one. At my YouTube channel, you can learn how to make nourishing herbal infusions. Or if you have any of my books, instructions for making nourishing herbal infusions are in every one of my books. And briefly, what you do is you choose a nourishing herb like stinging nettle. And stinging nettle has been shown in numerous studies in South America to reverse type 2 diabetes. And you weigh out one ounce of dried stinging nettle. You need a scale to weigh out one ounce, and you put it into a quart canning jar. Fill that jar to the top with boiling water. Stir the water and the nettle. You'll probably be able to add a little more water at that point until the water's up to the top of the jar, and then put that two-part canning lid on it and let it steep like that for four hours or overnight. I tend to do it at night, last thing at night. And then I let it just steep overnight, and then the next morning, it's ready for me to drink. Now, what I like to have people do is to aim for drinking the whole quart in a day. Most days, you're drinking what kind of things to drink? Uh, A lot of water. I'm so sorry to hear that. Please stop. I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. All water does is dehydrate you. 
the idea that you need to drink a lot of water was put forth by an ad salesman at a large, I'm not going to mention their name, beverage distributor for the purpose of selling bottled water, which is now something like a $4 billion a year industry due to people's belief that they're supposed to be drinking water. You are diabetic, you're an insulin dependent diabetic, your kidneys are under major stress, and water is the worst possible thing for your kidneys. Okay. Every cell in your body is protected by a lipid layer. Lipids are fats. Water and fat doesn't mix. You cannot be hydrated by water. Nourishing herbal infusion will hydrate you. Coffee will hydrate you, but water won't. All right. Tea, green tea, black tea, coffee, hot chocolate, nourishing herbal infusion. Those are the kinds of things I would like to see you drinking in as little water as possible. Most human beings, unless they're under extreme stress, do best when they drink about a quart of fluid a day. Only a quart? That's right. Okay. If you're thirsty, I'm not saying to ignore that. If it's a particularly hot day, are you doing something or you need more fluids? I'm not saying to ignore that, but I'm saying that what I see most people doing is obsessively and compulsively drinking water. Way beyond their actual physical need. Again, we've been talking about a little bit about macrobiotics tonight, and I do come up out of a macrobiotic background, and I will admit that my training in macrobiotics was that the body is going to be healthier when it's a little drier. That certainly you want to stay hydrated, but you do not want to be overhydrated. It's better to be slightly underhydrated than at all overhydrated. Okay. And especially in dealing with diabetes. And the other thing that I will ask you, which will sound very odd to you, is I would like to ask you please not to eat any fruit of any kind in any way. Okay. Is that because of the sugar or Yes, what? it's because it's primarily because of the sugar, but it it has there's a special sugar in fruit called fructose. And of course you've heard of high fructose corn syrup. So fructose is pretty common. And a great many people have an unsuspected sensitivity to fructose. In fact, I would say that virtually no one who believes they're lactose intolerant is. Almost everyone is fine with lactose. Maybe 10% of the people who think they're they're gluten-sensitive really are. But 10 times more people are sensitive to fructose. It's a major undiscussed sensitivity. And especially if you're diabetic, removing fruit from your diet for a short period of time, like two weeks, and then as you bring fruit back in, it should be only cooked or frozen fruit, never raw. 
And people look at me and say, cooked okay. fruit? And, of course, I say you have a problem with apple pie or cherry cobbler. Right. Or baked, baked peaches with maple syrup and cinnamon. And they go, oh, cooked fruit. Okay. Yeah, cooked fruit. It's good. It is. I like it. It is. It is. And, of course, best if there's no added sugar. A little bit of maple syrup, a little bit of honey, if you really need it. So, the other thing is that many many people eat fruit, and especially fruit juice, in the morning. And if you eat fruit, fruit juice in the morning, I believe that that sets your blood sugar up to go bouncing all over the place all day long. Yeah. When dealing, with, when dealing with diabetes, what I think is the best option is if you're going to have anything sweet at all, it should be after dark. No sweetened beverage, no fruit juice, no fruit, nothing sweet until after dark. Okay. Well, that definitely and again, helps these are just suggestions, but I think that if you, you know... Give up fruit for a little while. Don't eat anything sweet till after dark and start drinking nourishing herbal infusion, especially stinging nettle. That when you call me back in a month, and I want you to call me back in a month, you're going to say that your doctor is shocked at what you've done with your blood sugar. Well, I will be shocked if that's all it's going to take for me to be able to not be running super high. I have seen it hundreds so, of times. So I so I do it. believe that that's really, it really can be as simple as that. So for breakfast, what should I actually eat? Because I'm afraid to eat anything. The more protein that you can eat in the morning, the more stable your blood sugar will be. So let's start here. We talked about your making nettle infusion. So you're going to start the day with some nettle infusion. Are you a coffee drinker? Yes. Good. Most people like coffee in the morning. Have some coffee. Mm -hmm. Right? If you don't like your coffee black, put real cream in it, not creamer, not the fake stuff. And if you need it sweet, a tiny amount of maple syrup or honey, but not a sugar substitute or white sugar. What about coconut sugar? It's sugar. Is it brown? That would be a, yes. Then it has a little bit of minerals in it. So long as you don't overuse it, that's okay. What you want to do is to see if you can really limit sweet until after dark. Okay. And I understand, you know, I don't drink coffee because to me it's bitter and even putting sweetener in it is not good enough. It's bitter. It's nasty. I don't like the way it tastes. I understand people do. I have nothing against it. It's a perfectly fine beverage. It's an herb. It's healthy. I just don't like the taste or the smell of it. The smell is especially offensive to me. But I walk in and people go, oh, wow, smell that great coffee smell. And I go, I'll be outside waiting for you. (laughs) So. (laughs) Um, And then a cup of your nourishing herbal infusion. Nourishing herbal infusion, stinging nettle, is good warm with miso in it or a little salt or poured over ice. It's really wonderful in the summer, poured over ice. 
stinging nettle has so much protein in it that it could actually pass for breakfast. But I like to see um, people who want to maintain even blood sugar getting something high protein in the morning. Cheese, eggs, cheese omelet. Things like that. Right? Um, Little fish, sardines, smoked herring. What, What is your favorite, you know, Protein for breakfast. Cold chicken from the night before. Perfectly fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Bring yourself up to protein in the morning. You know, get get your coffee because you like that. Get some nourishing herbal infusion. Start the day with that. And see where that takes you. In general, if you eat a wide variety of wholesome foods, even with type 2 diabetes, you're going to be okay once you start drinking your nettle infusion, limiting sugar or sweet things to after dark, and taking a small vacation from fruit. Okay. Okay? It's easy right. to get It's easy to get freaked out about food, and that's, it's really important not to get freaked out about food. Yeah, I tell you, when you can eat, and it's funny that you say night because I can eat a candy at night and my blood sugar be more normal in the morning than it is if I don't. I'm like, I don't understand. So I don't have to convince you that restricting Uh your sweet intake to after dark is going to work for you. Right. Yeah. I come from a family of diabetics. My grandfather, my father, my grandmother, my brother. Yeah. I don't want to be a diabetic, so I've really looked at what I need to do to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my daughter, she has been trying to get me to drink infusions on a regular basis, but I've failed, so I'm going to work harder. And she's still on the call, so I know she heard That's that. great. And, and could you tell me about your failure to drink infusions? Maybe I can give you a hint or a help. Oh, laziness. I know that oh, I, um, she is. I, you know what? I am so lazy. In order to drink more infusion, what I do is I take something that I like to drink from. Mm-hmm. And I put my infusion in that thing that I'd like to drink from. Right now I have my infusion in a beautiful cut glass pitcher in the refrigerator. Yeah. And there's also a glass in the refrigerator that is cold that I can pour my infusion in. So when I open the refrigerator and say, I'm thirsty, wow, there's an empty glass and a pitcher of infusion. Now how easy is that, huh? That sounds a lot better than what I was doing. I was just avoiding it altogether. <laughs> So I had made it easy for myself. I also have like mm-hmm. a bottle that water kefir comes in, which is a really nice size opening to it. I, my mouth likes the size of the opening. It's not too small. It's not too big. Mm-hmm. It's just, and I fill that up with infusion. And then if I'm outside, I'll take that with me. So it's easy to drink infusion. Yeah. And it's only a quart. Right, when I, mean, I strain my infusion in the morning, I strain it into the pitcher, I strain it into a bottle, I have it available mm-hmm. to me so that mm-hmm. 
I can deal with the fact that, like all human beings, I am lazy. We're all lazy. Yeah. Some of us are just and more clever at getting around ourselves than <laughs> others, but we're all lazy. Right. And that, that's exactly what our parents and grandparents wanted. They wanted life to be easier for us. Isn't that what you want for your daughter? Absolutely. 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 And so we are the product of the delightful and wonderful laziness of our ancestors. Right. The things that I have on my legs. You wanted us to have a really easy time. Thank you. Thank you. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right, and let's see. We have four callers with their hands raised. Our next caller is calling from the 908 area code. From the 908, you are live with Susan. Hello, 908. Okay. Yes, hello, Susan. Thank you for taking Hi. my call. Hi, it's Carol in New Jersey, and um, green blessings. Um, on that scale that you're referencing for the mm, herbal infusions, um, what, do, do you have a brand that you recommend? What do I look up on, on, on the, that system that we look for? What I suggest that people do is go to any office supply store and buy a yes. postal scale. They're okay. inexpensive. They're digital. They have a T-A-R-E, a tear function. And okay. um, ones that I like um, are flat yes. and have a, a, like a flat thing that you can put your jar on. And, you, they're, you know, like scales have like, sometimes they're like tall. You don't need a tall scale. Just a short, flat scale is just fine. With a couple of buttons to push, no big deal. They're, you know, I think kind of an ordinary thing. Yes, excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah so that works perfectly. You're welcome. Okay. okay. And, um, <laughs> and I use a bigger scale when I'm making infusion for a lot of people, right? That works great. You know, those postal scales usually go up to a, you know, a certain amount, not a whole lot. Right. Right. So right. if you're going to be making for large crowds, you might need another scale to go up to higher amounts. Yes. And thank you so much for that great information on Hawthorne last week. That that was a beautiful um, discussion. Um, and the Hawthorne, is that written up in one of your books by any chance? Maybe Abundantly Well, the Hawthorne, um, I, How to Make You know, it. I don't have any herbal monographs in Abundantly Well because there's so much other information in there. I certainly okay. talk about Hawthorne quite a bit in Abundantly Well. Right. Um, okay. David um, Hoffman writes very eloquently about Hawthorne oh. um, in you. many of his books. And... Um, Actually, all of the European herbalists are just so in love with Hawthorne. It's so easy to find people praising Hawthorne in so many different ways and um, just really uh, acknowledging it as the beautiful heart-opening herb that it is. 
wonderful. Thank you. That was splendid. And um, Thank you, just Carol. a curiosity question, how much hot, uh, linden did you get when you harvested, like, I don't know, in the terms of pounds or something? I would say that the baskets are about two to two and a half feet across. Oh, and we've wow. filled eight baskets. Oh, Susan, wonderful. Oh, what a blessing. And then and then you So three it. of us worked worked solidly for an hour harvesting linden. Oh. And of course it will be less once it's dry. Oh, the yeah. hour that I worked with my feet on the ground on the other side of the Hudson River, yeah. okay. I ate a basket about that big across, about two and a half feet across, and maybe 18 to 20 inches deep, which is filled oh. about two-thirds full with the dried um, linden that I picked last week on that one sunny oh. day. Fabulous. Thank you so much. I yeah, and at some point food. I might weigh it, but I haven't yet. Oh, thank you so much. Greg Lessons, and I love Carol. you. Love and, you, bye-bye. And much healing to you. Bye. Mm, thank you, thank you. Yes. All right, and at this time we have one caller who has pressed 1 to signal that they have a question, and that caller is calling from the 778 area code. From the 778, you are live with Susan. Hello? Hi. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> hi, Susan. Hi, hi. Um, What's up tonight? I'm a little nervous with you, but I just want to say thank you first for everything that I've learned, and you've really changed my life. <laughs> um, Thanks for I'm giving me that honor tradition. Um, you've helped me change my life. <laughs> um, I'm calling because I was um, recently in a car accident, um, and I hit a deer and killed a deer. Um, ended up on the other side of the road um, in a ditch against a tree, and. Um, I hurt my head and my tailbone, um, and yeah, I've been, um, the days following, um, I was getting a lot of insights, maybe, or was just, like, seeing things from a new perspective and seeing my subtle nuances and the ways I do things. Um, and um, I find, like, I judge myself for judging myself. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been kind of crazy. Um, I am drinking my nourishing herbal infusions every day. Um, and I've been working with um, hypericum perforatum both externally and internally um, but yeah I just I feel like really um, 
almost like frustrated right now and um I'd like to be kinder to myself and more patient. Um I don't really know what my question is, <laughs> but uh thanks for listening. Yeah, well, deer have this amazing ability to suddenly appear directly in front of your car. <laughs> and everyone who lives in areas where there are deer um, has encountered a deer. As a matter of fact, my car currently has a dent in the back door where a bear ran into it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... These are the things we tell newcomers to the country. We would rather that you killed an animal than have to go to your funeral. Are you hearing me? Yeah, I hear you. We would much rather that you killed a deer than that we have to go to your funeral because if you swerve and try to avoid the deer, it is probably going to be your funeral. I did try to avoid the deer. Let's give the deer some volition. The deer appeared in front of your car. You didn't seek out a deer to kill, did you? No. Well, then let us admit that the deer made that choice. And that if anyone is to blame, and you know I run a no-blame, no-shame, no-guilt trip, if anyone is to blame, it's the deer. I I have a hard time giving anybody yeah, else I mean, besides you in the universe volition. <laughs> yeah, if, to be truthful. Yeah, sure. exactly. I mean, You're I was, the only thinking thing in the universe. The deer isn't a thinking thing. It's just some object no. out there that you act on. No! The deer exists outside of you, and it has its own volition and its own desires in its own story. And its story is that it put itself where you would kill it. Mm-hmm. You did not seek it out, am I correct? Yeah, you're correct. You were traveling along not even thinking about a deer. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And suddenly there was a deer in front of your car. And as a reflex, you might have turned the steering wheel which wound you up in a ditch and up against a tree, and we're darn lucky that we didn't have to go to your funeral. Please don't do that. Because the deer is not as important to us as you are. We're not going to say at her funeral how wonderful she spared the deer. So if you have a great need to shame yourself, to guilt trip yourself, and to blame yourself, well, this certainly satisfies that need. But 
I would advise you to give it up. How how can I do that when I, I like just want do to do it. that? What? <laughs> just do it. Stop just stop this nonsense. <laughs> You've got yourself all tied in a knot over what? Over a deer choosing to be killed by you? You should go outside and have a little hissy fit about the deer doing this to you. How dare it do that? How dear it. <laughs> How dear it. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming back from visiting grandmother in the Cataraugus Reservation near Buffalo, and we're trying to drive ahead of the storm. Big lake there and big storm effect around the lake, and it's snowing. Oh, gosh, it's snowing so hard. You can hardly see a thing. And we're like, we know if we just drive and drive pretty fast, we can get past the lake and out of the snow effect and on our way home, and it'll be okay before the snow starts to accumulate. And... Mickey's driving, and he says to me, will you get this and such? And I turn around to get it from the back seat, and I can't reach it with my seatbelt on. So I unfasten my seatbelt, reach around to get it, and as I'm turning back, I see the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life, a huge buck standing directly in front of the car. And I'm like, right, and now my seatbelt is off. Goodbye, life. And as I said, we're going at a pretty rapid pace, maybe 70, 75 miles an hour. And this buck leaps up. And because we are going so fast, manages to clear the car and run off down the road. Wow. You see, things exist outside of you, and they have their own volition and their own life. And where they interact with you, unless you have chosen to do something spiteful and mean, there's really no reason for blame. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. Okay. There are two callers with their hands raised. Our next caller is calling from the fourth area code. From the 406 area code, you are live with Susan. Hi there. This is Belva from Montana. Hi. I'm so excited. This is my first radio show. Ooh, welcome. <laughs> Susan, I I watched you on Cryon um, a few weeks ago, and then I, I immediately ordered your ABC um, program. And I've just started it, and I have to tell you that I am giddy with all that I'm learning from the program. And I have seven acres in Montana in gardens, and I have learned so much about those dang weeds that I have to be pulling that now um, I don't want anybody pulling my weeds. <laughs> but the weeds are the real superfoods. <laughs> so I'm finding out. But um, I've ordered, I've, I've sent you a letter and ordered some books and um, uh, waiting for some, some of my infusion herbs to come until I can get the others dried that, that, that I can pick. 
but there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about tonight. Um, and one is stinging nettle. I have a large patch of stinging nettle that I would like to pick, and but I would like your um, information on how I go about that safely. It might be too late. Oh, no. Is your stinging nettle flowering? Um, just about to flower. Mm-hmm, because once it's flowering, it's too late. Okay. So at that point, I either cut it back and use that nettle for fertilizer. Mm-hmm. I cut it up into pieces small enough to fit into a five-gallon tub, stuff nettle in that tub, fill it with water, put a lid on it, and let it sit until it rots, and then use that diluted about two-thirds as my primary fertilizer for my plants. And um, then the nettle will regrow, and I'll have young tender tops I can use, or um, I let it go out to seed, and then I harvest the seed. I was talking before about cooking brown rice with nettle seed and other wild seeds. Right, right. In general, I harvest nettle, both the tender tops, which again is just like the top, oh, three or four inches of the plant, which I make into soup. And when I'm harvesting for infusion, I let the nettle grow 18 to 24 inches tall. Again, before it flowers, cut it near the base and hang them in twos in a airy space that doesn't get direct sunlight. Okay. Okay. Um, and you hang them to dry for three weeks, a month, six Until weeks? Until they're dry. Until they're dry. Okay. Until they're dry. And it's going to be, they're going to be drier faster in Montana than they are in the Catskills. Absolutely. Yes, they will. Right. Our, our usual humidity is between 75 and 80%, so it can be hard to get things dry. And sometimes they're dry, and then it rains for three days, and they're, like, all wet all over again. Right. Even though they're not outside. They're not, they're not literally wet, but they've absorbed moisture because the air is so moist. Mm-hmm. Well, so what I say is it's dry when the hardest part of it breaks crisply. Store it in brown paper bags, and you won't have to worry about mold. Um, just outside of the fridge, not not in the fridge. Doesn't need to be refrigerated at all, right? So just brown paper bags at room temperature. The dried or the dried, you would not have room in your refrigerator for the amount of dried herb. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. No. Um, it, you know, so long as it's dark, cool, and out of direct sunlight, you're fine. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, my other okay. question to you, I heard you speaking to the gentleman earlier about um, Equisetum horsetail uh, and yeast infection. And I have uh, probably five acres that are covered in Equisetum. Yeah. Um, three varieties. That is harvestable only during the first 30 days of growth. Oh, okay. Next year. Darn. <laughs> I was hoping I could send truckloads of it out to you or something. But, um, I have a field of equisetum, too. Oh, I see. It's a hardy plant. It's one of the oldest plants on the planet. I understand that. Okay. And so what an interesting plant it is. I saw it 
uh, the Woodstock, they paved over this field of equisetum. And the next spring, the entire parking lot was gone. It was a field of equisetum again. It was really fun to watch it just just come right up through the through the asphalt as though nothing had been done at all. It took them years of paving it before the horsetail finally gave up. Wow. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It came in with a flood in 2011, and we've tried everything. But now perhaps we can just use it. I'll never use as much as I have, but... You know, it's at least I can feel like um, I can make some use of it. I was yes. actually thinking about making that my green ally. Would that be a good choice? That would be a wonderful choice. I like that. <laughs> uh, somehow I have to come to come to terms with this product. Um, so tell me when you when you do use uh, equisetum. Um, which do you use the ferny one? Do you? I uh, don't remember the names off the top of my head. But there's a ferny one. There's the bamboo stock, and then there's the one with the spore on top. Um, which would you recommend using for tea? Equisetum arvens is the one that is usually used, and it looks like a baby pine tree. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right, and the scouring rush, the one that's tall, stiff stalks, mm-hmm. can be it's usually used externally and not used so much internally. They carry, carry pretty much the same properties, but the Arvents, the field one, which is smaller and greener, right, and that's the is, one that is the one that's usually cited. Probably the one you have. Okay, um, okay so that's the one you'd use for. Yeah. So how would you use the other externally? The other one you could make into an infusion and use it as a soak, use it as a spray. Right? I'm talking about using fungicides externally because I, I don't believe that fungicides are that effective systemically. It's very rare. I don't know of anybody who actually has a systemic fungus except people really who are literally at death's door. Usually a fungus infection is going to be localized, and so I like localized treatments for it. Thank you for calling. Green blessings. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but now it's time to welcome Joanne Calabrese, a skilled wellness, mindfulness, and recovery educator, a lifelong organic gardener and herbalist. Joanne Calabrese is experienced in meditation, ritual work, qigong, and tai chi. She combines these intersecting disciplines in her writing, her workshops, and her coaching to assist others in healing themselves and the world. Joanne's book, Growing Mindful Explorations in the Garden to Deepen Your Awareness, provides the tools and creative ideas for interacting with the green world in an energetic and meaningful way. The goal is connectedness the intuitive understanding of being part of the larger circle of life on this planet. When we experience the visible and invisible energies that touch us all, we tap into a tangible support system that nurtures us and offers wisdom. Engaging with a garden is healing on so many levels, but people often overlook the energetic component 
of the garden. Joanne's work focuses on this connection and provides guidance for engagement. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Hi, Susan. Good to be here. Ah, such a delight to have you, and what a perfect time to have you here now. Those who have been gardening and knew what to do this spring are already reveling in zucchini and cucumbers and tomatoes and corn, huh? Yes, it's overflowing, yep. <laughs> overflowing. And time. those who are just kind of starting to jump rope are going, uh, when will my tomatoes have fruit? <laughs> Right, right. Right, that's okay, right? The great thing about being a gardener, I think, is that you always make mistakes, but you get another year. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and nobody gets it perfectly because everything changes all the time. The, the weather, plants, the critters coming through the yard, all of that, yeah. All of that. What inspired you to sit down and write a book, write Growing Mindful, in fact? So it's kind of been a long journey or a short one, depending on how I tell it. But uh, I grew up in a gardening family. Uh, my my grandparents were all Italian immigrants. Uh, my one grandfather had a huge garden, and I just have these very distinct memories of of actually running through the paths with uh, my cousins, like playing hide and seek, and remembering just the way the the corn stalks felt and the the tomato leaves smell when you brush up against them. And I just have vivid memories of that. So my parents had smaller gardens, but gardens were always just around. And I um, started having a family quite young, and it was important to have a vegetable garden. So that's always been a part of my life. And I also started a meditation practice in my uh, early 20s, which is quite a while ago now. And those two things kind of grew up simultaneously but then you know how life is you start to things start to weave together and it just became very apparent to me that this place that I get to when I am in the garden hands in the soil um, connecting with plants that that it's a it's a active meditation and so about 2013 I, I started just a blog just kind of musing about uh mindfulness and gardens and this connection and one thing led to another and just challenged myself to try to get it into a book in a more complete form so that if people were interested that there could be a little bit of a roadmap if people didn't have that available to them so that's kind of how it happened it's so fascinating to me how different things weave together in one's life. Yes. And and it, that it just always made sense to you to be meditative in the garden because those things arose together. And what a shock, I'm sure, for you to discover um, that people don't do that. In fact, you know, I didn't grow up in a gardening family, so I had to learn gardening from books. And it took me a while to realize that all the books were basically telling me to make war on my garden. Mm, yep. Just a lot of because, that going around. Because, yeah, because I didn't have that meditative view of it. When I had the meditative view of it, it was when I stopped making war on the garden and started really appreciating the weeds. Yeah, Absolutely. 
I always joke, uh, you know, because I'll meet people and now they know they've written the book or they just know I'm a big gardener and they're like, well, we should come over and see your garden. And I'm like, well, you're welcome to come, but it doesn't look like those house beautiful gardens that you see in a magazine. They're, there's interplanting, the vegetables are in with the flowers. Um, I, I welcome in a lot of the plants that are traditionally thought of to be weeds. So it, it, it looks wildish. And it has this wonderful energy to it, um, but it's not like a picture-perfect kind of place. Yes, as I say, I'm not above tucking a squash or tomato plant into the weeds. Right, right. But that's really, I mean, the vast majority of the food that I get out of my gardens is definitely from the weeds or plants that, maybe people wouldn't consider garden plants like I have a bed of nettle in my garden. Mm-hmm. And most people wouldn't necessarily want a bed of nettle in their garden, but we make soup from that nettle every three or four weeks, and it produces for us all year long, and it's <laughs> both early and late, and great nutrition and protein. How, I, I have a, I was how, how do you... A bed of nettles, too. Hey, there you go. How do you open people up to being more mindful in the garden? Do you have a, a favorite practice or a series of little short things that you could offer people? Sure. I think the first thing is to, like any mindfulness practice, just be present. I think, you know, people go out and, and again, I, I people have their own paths and their own, you know, their own motivation to do things. But I do find it interesting both when people are walking out um, on a beautiful path, or they're in their garden, but they have a headset on, or they're talking on the phone to someone, and they're not present. Um, and so I think that first practice is, even if it's for five or ten minutes, okay, you, you know, you want to listen to music while you're working in the yard, but for five or ten minutes, can you focus on being present with this, all of these amazing life forms around you? Because each of these plants is an entity, is a life form, and they're all giving all of this energy off to us and to the planet, and and we're part of this. And so to not say, yeah, I get that, I know that, but to experience that. And so sometimes the recommendation is really to do that for short periods of time, because if it feels very foreign to somebody trying to sustain it, that, that doesn't work. It's like if you're practicing a musical instrument, you do it for short you know, a short period of time, and then walk away. So can you maintain that for five or ten minutes and just be present? What are you seeing? What are you smelling? What do these plants feel like? What's happening in the soil? Just tuning into that. That's a first recommendation. That's the, that, in essence, is the first assignment that I give my apprentices. Sit for ten minutes a day with a green ally that you choose. That's cool. That's very cool. And breathe with yeah. it, as we are breathing with the plants, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we don't have to make up that we're breathing with them, that it's actually happening. We don't have to right. make up that we're exchanging actual atoms of carbon and oxygen with them. It's not like some imaginative thing. No, that's actually happening. And once you start paying attention to your breath and the plant's breath and that connection, boing, 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 a lot of doors open. Yes. Yeah. 
And they also like, um, so I have, uh, my children are adults now, but uh, grandchildren. And so the kinds of, um, some of the activities that really are fun uh, to introduce children to mindfulness in the garden um, is one around doing a treasure hunt and just deciding beforehand what you're going to look for in the garden. So are we going to look for flowers that are just starting to open up or are we going to look for a certain kind of shape, a certain kind of leaf or a shape of leaf or a certain color of insect because, and, we, and we do it silently. But again, for a short period of time. So we want to keep it interesting and fun and help them build those skills of tuning in. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, it, it's cool for kids, but it's also a great activity for adults to just, you know, what am I looking for um, on this walk or as I walk through my garden today, what am I going to spe- pay uh, special attention to and hone those skills? We are the Green Witches um, holiday is going up to Gretchen Gould's this Saturday. And I recall one year that we went up there and she had arranged something like that for us. She gave each one of the women the botanical name of a plant and then they had to find that plant. Neat. Yeah. A treasure hunt. <laughs> a treasure hunt, yes. Yeah. So part of garden mindfulness, it sounds like, is having fun, which is perhaps different than people might think of other meditation practices. In what other ways is garden mindfulness different? Well, I think um, for me, uh, um, having come up with a with a meditation practice, a sitting practice, and I, and I also do Qigong and Tai Chi, which are kind of a moving meditation, um, with the garden mindfulness, I feel like it brings us closer to the connectedness, which can be a result of mindfulness practice, but not always, because I know um, people who've been meditating for a long time, and I know even for myself at the beginning, where you can get very um, self-absorbed, and again, I I maybe was doing it wrong, or I wasn't focused enough, but I I think that there can be a level of of self-absorption with a sitting practice. So when we're doing a garden mindfulness practice, we are forced in a way to really be engaged with the world and the planet and, and to notice that connectedness. It's almost part and parcel to the practice. So you are building those skills to be aware of the connectedness, to sense the connectedness. And I think that in some ways that leads people, or I hope, to make better decisions. So if I feel connected to this whole planet, which of course we all are, but people often experience being disconnected. But if you're feeling connected, I think that you operate from a place of making better decisions for this generation, for the next generation, um, on down the line, that it, it becomes harder, whether you're a business person or you work in the nonprofit world as I do, to make decisions that aren't beneficial um, to the whole, and I think that 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 is a key element that I've noticed. That I think with some um, some practices, people can just get very uh, self self absorbed and um, and not be thinking about this interconnected piece. Yes, 
think that this is very challenging for all humans is to perceive and then accept that our group is not the only group. Right. You know, most of our ancestors really did believe that they were the people and that everything that they saw was theirs. And people are often shocked when I indigenous group that was in any way what we would consider ecological. Because they truly believed that everything was theirs to use. Right. With no thought, truly, for future generations. One of the most glaring examples is the Maori who arrived in New Zealand and within 25 years had hunted every bird weighing more than a pound to extinction. I did not know that. Yeah. All indigenous cultures act that way. It is truly the modern human who is doing their best to get it that we are not only our group, the people, but that we are a big group, the people. It's hard for anyone to get being one of eight billion. It's just too big a number. Yes. And yet when we get it, there's a responsibility and a joy and an energy that is freed up in us that helps us to act in a way that is more connected. You know, I think about how important it is for women to to nourish relationship and to nourish connectivity. And I think that that is very female. Some people are calling it feminine, but feminine really is a cultural construct. Female is not a cultural construct. It's an actual thing. And uh, I see um, this, this, this connectedness and this relationship that you're talking about is, to me, part of the, the real glory of the female. Yeah, I, I, I totally relate to that with both building relationships in both the work that I do, but also with kids and grandkids and that, that interconnected family and, and friends. Yeah. It's important to affirm that. Right. So in the book, you talk about plant correspondences. What does that mean? So plant correspondences are like an energetic personality trait that a plant might have. And um, they have many. And so in the book, I write about 52 plants in the second part of the book. And they are the correspondences that really popped out to me that were most important to me. And of course, again, plants like people can have more than one energetic characteristic or one correspondence. But they were the ones that were really meaningful. I mean, some of them I've just sort of experienced again since I was a child, plants that I have grown up with. And um, the, the way that I suggest working with them is if it resonates with people when they read the book, that they, that correspondence resonates with them and with that plant, that they can use that plant and correspondence as a meditation focus. 
So um, if you take them one a week, because they're 52, you can uh, bring the plant into the house. If it's a plant that's edible, you can use it in meals or in tea and really align with that plant's energy. And at the same time, um, there are some suggestions for like journal writing activities, morning meditation, um, and really just align with with that plant. So, for example, one I've been just thinking about a whole lot, and again, comes from my childhood, is Snapdragon. And the correspondence is joy. And that comes, I mean, anybody who's, who's a gardener knows that Snapdragons, you can make them talk like little puppets. And I, many, many years ago, somebody introduced me to that, and it is a vivid, vivid memory for me. I remember, I can almost smell the grass we were laying on, and my friend picked one and showed me how to make this puppet out of the snapdragon and it was just this feeling of joy and I think that um, it's imprinted for me that correspondence with that plant so whenever I see snapdragons I think about joy and that connection and when we stop and we tune into both that plant's energy and that correspondence there's some things we can do to cultivate it so I think that it's important to cultivate joy, um, to meditate on it, to ask ourselves how we can invite that in, in addition to, you know, having the plant in the garden or bringing the plant in. You know, what other ways can we invite joy into our lives? And so that's one way to begin to work with the correspondences and, and the plants. And one example. All right. You know, before time gets away from us, why don't you share with people where they can get your book and how they can contact you? Okay, great. Um, so the book uh, is Growing Mindful, Explorations in the Garden to Deepen Your Awareness. And you can get it um, directly from the publisher, Llewellyn. But um, I encourage people also to go to their indie bookstores. They'll all order it for you. And, of course, there's Amazon. It's, it's on Amazon. Um, I also have a website where I do my blog, and there's other information there. Uh, in Denver, I do uh, mindfulness walks with Qigong at Bluff Lake Nature Center. So if people are in Denver, that information is at my website. Uh, the website is um, mindfulnessgardengames.com. Um, also available for coaching. And uh, I do online mindfulness circles quarterly. So all of that information is there. And all those things are free to different events. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. That's so wonderful. Did anything surprise you while you were writing the book? I had um, many surprises. A couple were just synchronicities where um, I was writing about a plant and it had been a plant that I used my whole life and I knew what the correspondence was and then I looked up some information and it was just totally resonated. Uh, one of those was iris, and I always thought that irises were transcendent. That, again, from my childhood, they were just such amazing. They looked otherworldly. And uh, when I started looking up where the name came from, they were named after the goddess iris, who was both the goddess of rainbows, which is their transcendent, and also a messenger from the gods. And I thought to myself, well, that just, that's totally right because when when we get these transcendent energies happening, when we're tuning into them, it's like messages from the gods, from the divine. So 
that was just the synchronicity and confirmation for me. And I think one of the other really big things that happened for me was this deeper, deeper connection with my, um, my ancestors and just generally the ancestors uh, with reading some of the history on the plants with gardening and thinking about my grandfather um, who was transplanted here from Italy, uh, just so, so into gardening. I have all of these memories of, you know, shelling beans under uh, his grape barber and all of those things. But I think, and I've always known those stories and I have these good memories, but really connecting again um, energetically as I was doing some of the writing and just sort of feeling their presence. Uh, my father always grew apple trees and so writing about apples and just feeling like I was honoring honoring those people in my in my past and then just all the ancestors and when we think about the all of our people who started um, understanding how to work with plants how to turn flax into fiber uh, how to harvest things and preserve them I was kind of I don't know just kind of blown away by all of it as I kind of really settled into it to do the writing it was very it was wonderful so the writing was like an ancestral journey for you. It it brought um, memories and um, maybe even messages from Absolutely. those dear dear people in your life. How how blessed, how precious. Yes. Wow. I. <clears throat> uh, and. Not in Montana, though, right? Like you live now in Montana, but those the gardens. I'm, I'm in Colorado now. Um, I was in Pennsylvania. I, my in daughter's Pennsylvania. in Montana. I, 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 as I'm seeing you there with your father and your grandfather, it's much more like Italy than Colorado is. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah. yes, yes, the Pennsylvania, those those rolling hills and the hotter summers that yeah. uh, that were there. But certainly you can do wonderful gardening in Colorado, just short season things, right? Short season. And um, what I didn't realize when I first moved here is there is a season of hail here. Uh, my whole life in Pennsylvania, we probably had hail five times, um, any hail that would damage anything. There is a season of hail here. So I have many things covered with hail cloth. I've gotten very inventive about what I need to do to protect things. Um, but you you learn, you know, you just, you come to a new area and you, you learn and you interact with the plants and the energies that are here. And, you yeah, you change it up every year. Your work is so wonderful. I am so thankful that you have given us um, this wonderful book, Growing Mindful and that it's so easily accessible to people. It's hard to believe that we have talked our half hour away and come to the last few minutes of our time together. And so I want to ask you, what would you like to leave in the hearts and minds of everyone who's been listening to you? Just get out there, and you don't even have to be a gardener, although I think everyone should, but even if you're not a gardener, go out into the green world and just notice begin to pay attention and be open to feeling those energies and, and learning from it. It's, it's talking to us, you know, it's, it's there. 
And I just encourage people to do that. Take the time. Take the time to go outside, whether it's in your own garden or just the garden of nature, says Joanne Calabrese of mindfulnessgardengames.com. You know, I believe that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. I think that learning to spin fiber, to make nets and to weave, is pure female wisdom and one of the most amazing things on this planet. So I invoke that for us all, that we are reweaving this healing cloak of the ancient, the ancient women. And what beautiful, subtle, and elegant threads you have added to that cloak with our conversation tonight, with your work and with your ongoing work. Thank you for being here and being a voice for the plants and the planet, Joanne. And Sarah Ellen, thank you once again, Sarah Ellen, for being that strong, deep, heartbeat drum that is behind it all, switching the buttons and doing it all so beautifully. Green blessings. Thank you, Sarah Ellen. Thank you to everyone who's helping me to reclaim herbal medicine as people's medicine. Good night, everybody. Blessed be. Love to you, Susan. Thank you so much.